0: This episode is powered by DEN Certifications. You want to deepen your practice or supplement your knowledge for your day-to-day job? You'd be surprised to know how many certifications we do offer. All levels of Reiki, intuitive healing, compassion, animal communications, and of course, our deep 400-hour meditation teacher training program. Go to denmeditation.com and look under certifications for more information. Hey, welcome to Den Talks. This is Tal Rabinowitz, founder of Den Meditation, and we got a really cool guest today. His name is Ben Fetter. He is the author of Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. He was the CEO of a major video game company that we'll talk about a little bit later. And honestly, one day he just looked at his wife, they have four kids, they live in New York, he's fast paced life. And he's just like, we got to like make a change. And he decided to take a sabbatical. His friends thought he was crazy. His partners thought he was crazy. They couldn't even guarantee his job would be there when he got back. But he didn't care. And they left for eight months. And the evolution is kind of astonishing what a man who kind of lives in his brain, is super analytical, is really, really busy in his go, 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 what being in Bali and watching his four kids evolve and shift and change and all the changes that happen in him. It's an amazing conversation. We really talk about how to live life with intention, how to add meaning into every single thing you do, even if it's just waking up every single day and going to a job, how you can bring meaning to that. And how things like art and learning how to draw have completely shifted the way he looks at the world and his perspective changed because of that. So it's really cool. If you've ever even thought about taking a sabbatical or like running away, we do talk about the difference of escape and transition, but this could be motivation to make a big change that you've been wanting to make. Or regardless, if you're not in a place to make a big change, but you just kind of want to learn how to live life with a little bit more purpose, this is a great episode. This guy could not get, be more quote unquote normal and living the typical day to day. He came back, he's It's CEO of another huge conglomerate. So he's still doing what he's doing. He's just doing it with a different perspective. I hope you enjoy the episode. Don't forget at the end, there's always a personal practice. He is going to do his personal practice, which is a compassion practice. It is not a meditation. It is something that every single person can do. And it has really shifted the way he not only can process things for himself, but how he kind of looks at the world. It reminds me a little bit of micro gestures that we talked about on Larea's episode. (music) So I'm talking today with Ben Fetter, who's a business executive and investor. He's a senior executive at Tencent, a Chinese conglomerate that owns WeChat and dominates Chinese internet-related media and tech industries. Before that, he was the CEO of Take-Two Interactive, which published video games that I'm sure everyone has heard of, like Grand Theft Auto and Red Dead Redemption. But what I really want to chat with him about is the fact that he's just published this amazing book, Take Off Your Shoes, One Man's Journey from the Boardroom to Bali and Back. It's all about his journey deciding to leave his high-powered... High paying and high stress job from New York, and just pretty much out of the blue, take your entire family and move to Bali for eight months. Um, part of the reason I really am so, I love the book. I thought you did such a great job of just being really raw with your emotions and just being really honest what it means to kind of have to shift that brain. So I want to chat with you about the moment you even decided to make that change for your family and for you. Because look, I made a change in my life too that people are really aware of. I used to have a high powered job in entertainment and stress, and then I decide ah, I'm going to try something new and then opened up a bunch of meditation studios and people always ask me about like how did you make that choice how what was that moment so what was it for you because you're a man who made decisions all the time and you're kind of a little bit in a rat race when you're in that world and it's not like at least from your book I didn't get the impression something huge happened it wasn't like a death in your family made you look at things differently you couldn't get into it so what was it for you that all of a sudden gave you the ability to start saying, I need a break.
1: Um, you know, there are, there are one or two all-of-a-sudden moments that I describe in the book, um, but it would be facile to say that a decision like that for somebody like me, who's pretty methodical and deliberate about <laughs> the way he goes about his life, um, it would be facile to sort of say, oh, there was this uh, moment where I just decided, no more, I can't take it anymore. Um, but it was a combination of, you know, asking myself questions about what I wanted um, out of my life and things that were happening to me at the time um, including a friend of mine who had died and um, uh, you know the kind of the amount of time overall of you know after years of circling the planet in the service of running a business and um, shareholder value um, and seeing the impact it's had on um, my marriage and my family and asking myself questions about um, what, is, what it is I want, the kind of life that I want and how I want to spend my time on this planet because at the end of the day we're all kind of living a borrowed time. And um, uh, and there was sort of the combination of that, you know, the, that build-up that I think everybody goes around with at some point in their lives and somewhere in the back of their brains. Um, and, you know, and there were kind of some moments where that became really poignant for me. Um, the now or never moment came when I realized that. I remember coming home. I describe this in the book. I remember coming home one day from work, and I uh, go say hello to my son. I crack, I crack the door open to his room, and I say hi, Sam, and he kind of grunts something at me. He was had his head. He was nose nose in his books, and um, you know he's a serious student, and he just kind of grunted something at me. And then I closed the door, and I called him to dinner, and he grunted some more. <laughs> And I had this moment. He was in eighth grade at the time. I was like, well, next year he's in high school, and um, he's going to get more serious about his work because he won- he's a serious student, um, and I'm going to be circling the globe a few more times. And then he's going to go off to college, and that's it. That's the end. And of course, it's not the end end, but it's just it's the end of my time together with him. And now many you know years later, I kind of realized, of course, that's true, right? He's in college, and he comes home periodically, but he's not living at home anymore. And I had this moment of now or never. You know, If you're not going to do this, not now, then when? But I, I mean,
0: I think that's... And, oh, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt.
1: Go ahead. So um, so that was kind of one moment. And then there's another moment I remember just kind of walking down the street and sort of, you know, listening to people's phone calls. Um, we can do that in New York. You know, walk down the street and have people around us. unlike like L.A. But... Um, <laughs> Uh, you know, just listening to what they were doing, and I saw somebody that kind of looked like me, was dressed like me, was having this conversation that sounded like a conversation I would have, and I just kind of saw myself. This moment that we all strive for in meditation, like witnessing myself from the outside, and I saw this person kind of, and I saw myself, and I was like, you know, well, you know, can I do this? And I just like, I could not delay any. I felt like I could not delay it anymore. I had a now or never moment. And I've been very deliberate about the things I've done in my life. And I felt like I needed to be very deliberate about this.
0: But I guess what's so interesting about that to me, which is kind of uh, up top, why I was like, it didn't feel like there was anything huge. And I do apologize. I forgot about the death of your friend is I'm sure your son had grunted at you many times before, and I'm sure you've seen versions of yourself walking down the street many times before. So it's just fascinating that there was something about this moment that was brewing in you. And you were always a very motivated kid, like if you look at where you were in your life as a CEO, was that surprising for you that you got there? Or is that something you were kind of always striving for since you were younger? You know what I mean?
1: It's A little bit of both. I was a little bit of an accidental CEO. But, I've, you know, I, yes, I was always striving for it. But the way I got there was a little accidental right. um, in a way. I mean, I just dis- I described a scene in the book. The opening scene is kind of a hostile takeover. Was that was amazing. Fact, it was a hostile takeover of, you know, the company where I kind of went in and, you know, with guns blazing, and I said throughout throughout the CEO. Throughout, I mean, throughout is probably the wrong word, but um, you know, we changed over the management team and took over a very troubled company that today is actually quite successful, and I'm very proud of the turnaround. Um. And, uh, but, it, but it was a very unconventional way of doing things. I became CEO not because I was promoted from the ranks, right? I just, you know, I didn't kind of rise my way through. I didn't rise through the ranks and find my way to the top. I just you know, crowbarred my way in and sort of said, you know, I'm the CEO today. And not me, but shareholders. And uh, it's an unconventional way to become a CEO.
0: So when you guys decided to go, that moment, do you remember how it felt for you? Like, because there's such a power in choice, whatever that choice is, there's such a power in like a finality of choice. Like, how was that for you?
1: Uh, (laughs) you, I totally agree that there is a lot of power in choosing. And I really try to avoid the question, which I'm sure is coming, you know, what lessons do you have for readers? I actually don't I have really. Them. Tr- I really try. <laughs> I really try to avoid. Well, people ask me that all the time. It's like, so you know, and I kind of feel like it's, you know, okay, I don't want to read the book because nobody reads anymore. So just tell me what it, you know, give me, give me, give me the executive summary. And I really, and I really try, um, just to tell my story with and letting readers draw their own lessons. But when I'm pushed, that is the lesson, right? Be Live the life that you want to lead. Make deliberate choices about how you go about your life. And make and be specific about it as opposed to just being carried away by the stream of, of, of events and the stream of all the external forces that really drive most people's lives. Their jobs, their family, their, um, um, you know, whatever, their health or whatever it is, that seems to be out of their control and recognizing that you do have control and you can make choices even if it involves trade-offs. And there were trade-offs that I definitely, there were trade-offs that I made, um, risks that I took that I, you know, I get a lot of I get criticism sometimes for being, going, you know, oh, sure, at 1% or you can do it, a CEO can do it, but what about, you know, somebody who's toiling away in a cube somewhere? And- um, How do you respond to believe, that? I um, believe, you know, I have two responses to it, but, you know, one of them will sound defensive. It's not meant to be defensive. Um, and that is you know when I went to Bali um, my cohort the people that the other parents in the school that my kids went to were not CEOs they were I mean some of them were you know bankers and consultants and but most of them were I mean just to rattle them off it was teachers and nurses and farmers and um, you know people with limited means and frankly living a little bit of a of a colonial life right because Labor is very cheap there and they actually live a better life in, in the third world than they can live back home because you know, back home they spend their weekends doing laundry and now they have their weekends free because somebody else is doing their laundry. Right. And um, so it may it may sound defensive, but I don't believe that you need to be a one percenter to um, take the kind of trip that I took. And I met people there that made this choice of for years sort of saying, Okay, we're not gonna movies we're not gonna go to the movies this weekend. Or we're not going to do whatever we're going to do this weekend because we're saving up because in three to five years, we're going to have an amazing experience as a family. I, and it involves
0: I agree with that. I don't think that's defensive at all. We actually just interviewed Light Watkins. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's a big meditation teacher in the Vedic space. And he talks about making one of those big choices when he was fresh out of college after having a job and had no money. So I do feel like at every level of your life, how this part started, the power of choice is huge and like you said there's always risks evolve with it but i don't think you necessarily have to be a one percenter like you said in order to make that choice like anyone has the power of right. making those choices so i don't right. i don't so think-
1: i mean which is your point right because this is an incredibly powerful moment when you make that decision and you to get back to your original question about what it would feel like um, it felt you know liberating empowering um frightening right it took took a it was I had many people come to me and say, what are you doing? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, look, I mean, you're at the peak of your career. You finally achieved what you wanted to achieve. You're going to piss off all sorts of people. What, you know, why? Why are you doing this?
0: And was it just like you achieved and, um, all this stuff and it just didn't feel like you thought it was going to feel?
1: Oh, I don't know. Um, I uh, I guess I just had the confidence that I'll just look. Like, I did it once, I'll do it again. I, you know. I, Maybe because I did not raise, I did not kind of rise through the ranks and I, you know, I go from one position to the next position and all that stuff. Um, and then I just, you know, I crowbarred my way into one situation, I'll crowbarred my way into another situation. I've always been an entrepreneur and made learning opportunities.
0: But I think that's a huge point because I think ultimately what you're saying is you believed in yourself, period. And I think that is a huge point. If people believe in themselves... Um, then they never feel so alone. Like, they feel like they'll be okay with whatever choice they make, which then ultimately is the cushion that people probably say for you is the 1%. But that's really the cushion. It's believing in yourself more than it's the 1%. And
1: that that life is long and that, um, you know, in kind of the meditation and yoga uh, circles, everybody likes to say life's a journey. And, you know, what are we living for? Why are we here for? You know, kind of. And I had this, I, you know, part of what I describe as my interest in the book is kind of my interest in neuroscience and what, how we learn about how the brain works. And part of it is the importance of personal relationships and never mind family relationships. Never mind that I thought I was losing touch with those because I was so engaged in my job. But on the positive side, how do you create how do you create joint experiences? How do you kind of develop a deep relationship with people? Because you know, and, and what, one of the answers to that is. Um, creating deep experiences that you experience together, where there's emotion attached to it and emotion kind of creates memory. And and I had the sense that I was actually meeting all sorts of interesting people in my job and going to all sorts of interesting places, but I was doing it on my own, right? I was not able to share it with my family. And I felt that my day-to-day experience was diverging. You know, every day was kind of more and more divergent from their day-to-day experience. And so wouldn't it be fun and exciting to have an adventure together where it was emotional, where we kind of did something, um, you know, really out of the, out of the ordinary um, and courageous? And what kind of lessons would my kids learn from that? And what kind of gift would that be for my children? And, um, and, like, and like I said, life is long. Who knows what the world brings? Had I stayed in my job, who knows what would have happened then? And how, I mean, there are all sorts of twists and turns that people's lives take and some of them are self-inflicted or self-imposed in the way i, I did it and some of them are just you know you can't control everything
0: and you have four kids right i have four kids i mean that's a lot yes. of kids so i mean it's taking this <laughs> but taking but taking this journey it's like journey to use that word um we should make it a drinking game everybody drink every time we say journey <laughs> but but to do this like with four kids is also no small feat. I mean, I, I, I love that you had this instinct of, like, family needs to be tighter. I want to give this lesson. But it's not like you had one child and it's like the three of you. Not that th- that would be difficult, too, but four kids because that's four different emotions, four different reactions, four people you have to take care of, four different places they are in their lives. Like, that's a lot right. to manage.
1: It, it, it is. I'm fortunate to have a really good partner in my wife, who's the force of nature and kind of makes stuff happen like this all the time. Um, <laughs> I love that. And uh, would not have been able to do it without her at all. And um,
0: One of my favorite parts of the uh, book but it was a big is, deal. is when you're like, all of a sudden you're like, um this is supposed to be your sabbatical too. And she's like, yeah, really yours.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and I
0: just love it. I was like, oh, now I get it. Like, this is the woman who just is going to always be working regardless what that means. Like, she's taking care of shit.
1: <laughs> well, you you... I'm glad you got that because that is who she is.
0: Yeah, yeah no, I loved it. I, I really admired it, actually. And she seemed like a very patient, loving woman that she allowed you to do I your can... thing. And and then you you came back, like you found what was important, which I think for her was probably she was so happy probably to see that you returned back to probably where it started in the first place. But well, I
1: think I think there. I, I would not. I wouldn't. I don't agree. With, I I wouldn't say that. I kind of we went back to where we started in the first place. I think we came back to our old home. Um, but we all in our own way uh, were permanently changed people right? because of that experience.
0: What I meant, and I probably phrased it wrong, so it's, I actually want to ask you the question. When you guys met as a couple, like what kind of relationship did you have? I think I meant more like that. You came back to home, like as far as you two as a couple. Um, what do you feel like you guys- You know, were- shockingly,
1: shockingly uh, you know, it was a blinding flash of the obvious when we get to Bali. All of a sudden, I realized, like, oh, my God, it's every day, all day with this person. <laughs> and, and we never had that. And we were dating, right? You kind of you went, and you went on dates, and you got married, and you went to work. And, I mean, you weren't there during the day all day long right. for a year, better part of a year.
0: So it's like actually, you're like, hey, I get to know you. Hi.
1: <laughs> right. Like, well, I mean, that's, we get along pretty well. So it worked out for us. But, you know, the truth is there are people we met in Bali that kind of weren't really prepared for that, and it didn't work out so well. You know, people go there sometimes that's to kind of work on their marriage, and it doesn't, doesn't, always, doesn't always work out in the end.
0: But at least they get the answers they need. Yes. Yes. So that's good. So you were just talking about kind of the neuroplasticity and kind of the science behind it. And one thing that I found so intriguing you talked about in your book is art. So you were not an artist at all before you went on this trip, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you kind of decided to learn how to draw to test the hypothesis that anyone could get out of an analytical mind to, like escape it for a while is that true and then- well it was
1: it was, it was a uh, it was a thought it was an experiment it was a science experiment for sure um, but the hypothesis I was really trying to test is you know can we really pick up a new skill that we where we have no skill right can we really train our brain even in middle age to, to do something utterly new right because a, a is kind of that and B kind of it's actually healthy you know everybody sort of says you need to work your brain as you get older kind of Um, learn a language, and learn a new skill, and what would that be like to turn on parts of your brain that were never turned on before? Because, you know, without that we just, you know, we have the the same thought processes, you know, we kind of begin to, um, by rote, begin to think in certain ways, and can you change the neural pathways to think in different ways? Which leads to all sorts of possibilities, not just in terms of artistic skill, but in terms of just personal happiness and personal sense of well-being, just by Literally changing the anatomy of your brain by thinking different thoughts, forcing yourself to think certain thoughts, forcing yourself to learn different skills, and just by brute force, actually changing who we are as people and as our skill set and all of this. So that was kind of the overall hypothesis. And it's been—it's been an amazing result for me.
0: So ha- you had no interest in drawing until that moment. Like that wasn't something that you're sure. like, maybe I'll try it one day, and then that finally—you just had no interest. But now it's a passion of yours, correct? Like you're actually yeah. So talk about it. Yeah,
1: I kind of I kind of feel like I'm a I'm a like, you know I'm a, I'm a real painter, <laughs> which is bizarre to me. Like I I, lo- I look at what I create and I was like, I don't have a lot of time to, to paint anymore. But you know what I do create, I'm like I look at that and I sort of I'm proud of it. right? I think that's you know, that's really beautiful.
0: So and talk a little bit about it. Like part of it was about how you can shift from left brain to right brain. Can you talk a little bit more about it? And then talk about what it has done for you because you said these results have actually been amazing.
1: Um, so. You know, I started almost because I'm a reader and um, I just happened to pick up a book called Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain, which is a, probably a 40-year-old book by now, written by a woman um, who whose premise was anybody can learn how to draw. The trick is to learn how to see and to teach people to t- see the way an artist sees. And the way to do that is to open your mind to perceive things that... Um, that you didn't think were there in the first place. And so the the first exercise and she has a bunch of exercises that um, open up your mind to that. And so the first exercise is she says, Okay, here is a line drawing by Picasso. Can you copy that? Just try to take a blank piece of paper and try to copy this very simple line drawing of Igor Stravinsky. And pardon me. And then um, so I do that, and it just looks, and I look at what I've done, it just looks terrible. <laughs> and she goes, now, instead of that, why don't you turn that painting Turn that drawing upside down and cover half the page. And so just draw the bottom half, and then you'll draw the top half, but do it upside down. And when you're done with that exercise, you turn it right side up again, and you look at it, and it's extraordinary at like how close I got. And then it was almost like a magic trick. I was like, how do you, how, what happened? and so she goes through an explanation of what actually happens right where you kind of you're less focused on the traditional neural pathway i'll put my, my words not hers right of like there's an eye there's a nose i'll try to draw a nose because i think i know what a nose looks like i think i know what an eye looks like i try to draw it and it comes up looking like crap but when you turn it upside down you think differently right almost you're thinking about okay there's a line that's connecting to another line it's on this angle and it's got this curve and you're kind of less focused on you know, what the thing is as opposed to, uh, what the thing should look like as opposed to what the thing actually is, right? And this is a great meditative lesson too. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Focus
1: on what is as opposed to what should be. Um, and it's a bit of a trick to turn on the right side of the brain, the right side of the brain being the brain that thinks in terms of line and shape and edge and image as opposed to uh, left side of the brain which which thinks in terms of reductionist things like words and numbers and letters. And, um, and I, and, you know, so once you get over the magic trick and you do a few more of these things, I began to open up to a world that I, I that I, and perceive a world that I never knew was there. And I felt like I literally was turning on the, like the synapses firing that had never fired before, right? And the way I saw shadow and the way I saw shape and the way I saw the way light moves during the day or across somebody's face. And I saw light for the first time and saw the effects of light and saw how, uh, you can create um, in somebody else's mind you can force some, somebody else's mind to conjure up an image just by hinting at certain things because the brain fills in information so if you draw you know a, uh, a vertical line next to two hor- in the middle of two horizontal lines it almost looks like an eye, eyes and nose and but it's not it's just three lines but the you know the viewer will kind of immediately take that as in the right setting will take that as just a face how much? And so you can create these illusions, and, and again, there's a, a lot of this to me relates to meditation, right? Because if you you buy into the Buddhist state of you know everything is an illusion, and kind of the and how the brain creates things out of nothing, right? Their thoughts emerge out of nothing; they secrete out of your brain, and um, you kind of and there's a lesson about drawing and all of that, where you know i the, the artist deliberately creates an illusion for the viewer. And the viewers, and you're kind of deliberately taking what the brain normally does, which is create, you know, create ideas and create illusions.
0: What do you feel like in the process for you, what came first for you? Do you feel like the learning how to draw and starting to process these thoughts helped you kind of look at the world differently? Or do you think the fact that you were in Bali and starting to look at the world differently is what helped you process these thoughts? Like, was it chicken or the egg?
1: Uh, Hard to know. I don't know, it all happened at the same time. You know, while I was learning to draw, I was also learning to meditate. And while I was learning to meditate, I was also engaged in a a deep yoga practice. And while I was doing all of that stuff, I was on a great adventure with my family. And, you know, it's impossible for me to tease it out. But I would say, of all those things that have lasted for me, I mean, they've all lasted. You know, Bali was a great adventure and a memory. Um, But meditation and art and yoga are still daily practices well art not so much daily but yoga and meditation and daily practice for me and art is very much a part of my life
0: that's incredible that you got all those tangible things that take away from the trip what what do you feel like you know you talk about one of the things you got from your you meditation know, I, I tell people
1: the the irony by the way is that you know a lot of this book is about stepping back from achievement and achievement oriented life and the irony of course is a the book publishing a book in and of itself as an achievement yeah. and it talks about you just sort of said well you learn how to meditate and do yoga and art and all of those in a way are achievements also and I guess I can't get away from them.
0: Yeah, I mean you could look at it that way too. I mean one could also say, couldn't you learn art, meditation, and yoga in New York? You know? I mean, but sometimes you have to like shift the yeah. whole sometimes you just have to shift your world in order to be open to different things.
1: Right, right. And perceive things differently and perceive the world differently.
0: Yeah, so and you talk a lot about intention, which you started actually thinking about through a meditation you did. In Bali so like you look back when you look back at your life where do you feel like you were living with intention and where do you feel like you weren't
1: my life before sabbatical yes Uh, that's a great question I think it would be facile to say that I lived without intention altogether before I went to Bali it's probably not true right because just the decision to go to Bali was living with intention yep Um, but I would say I lived with a lot less intention. Right? I, I pause, even though I was kind of beginning to ask myself big questions about, you know, how I want to spend my time on this planet. Um, I, those thoughts are much more front and center to me, right? I want to make sure that I'm, you know, that I'm doing uh, what I want to be doing and what I should be doing, you know, almost daily. And that when I'm in a room with somebody that I'm present in the room, um, and there were many times before I went to Bali where I wasn't even aware that I wasn't present. Um, and I have certain practices that I do in order to make sure that I'm present. Right? I try to leave my phone out of my meet, out of a meeting. Um, I do sometimes, you know, my mind wanders every now and because I have a little bit of ADD. But um, <laughs> but I'm much more aware of it now. It's like oh my mind's wandering. Bring it back in, Bring it back into this meeting. And. Um, and so I live with that kind of intention and that kind of, to, to establish presence. Um, and I'm much more, I've become much more um, interested in the people in my life and people that I meet that are not necessarily in my life, but I've become much more interested in people, less, you know, a little less interested in, you know, just kind of achievement for achievement's sake and success for success sake.
0: Um, you know, one of the conversations off of this that you had with your friend Carl when you were in Bali was... Like you're saying now, like, how do you make sure everything has meaning? Like, what's the meaning behind it all? So do you feel like everything needs to have meaning? So what's the balance of does every job have to have meaning? Or can you do both at the same time? So can a passion have meaning and a job not have meaning? What do you feel like is the balance between that?
1: That's a great great question. I think meaning is a really hard thing to parse out. Because it's very personal and it can be subjective. And what I find meaningful, you may find completely trite and vice versa. And, uh, and and I don't, and, you know, you try to have meaning every day of your life. It's really hard to have meaning every day of your life, right? We all have jobs that we kind of go through, not all of us, um, but most of us have jobs that we go through or have families that we be taken care of. And, you know, you got to feed the kids and provide a shelter and all of that stuff. And that, you know, in a way, in a fundamental way, there's nothing more meaningful than feeding your children and providing shelter for them. Right. Um, but it doesn't always feel that way. Sometimes it just feels like it's done by rote, and it's not. Um, and people do it without intention, and you miss out a lot by doing it without intention. How can you bring so, how can
0: you bring attention to those quote like smaller things in life? And like you said, they're not actually small, but sometimes they can feel small. Well,
1: like like there, you know, there are lots of you know mindfulness practices that do that. You know, if you're sitting in traffic on the four hundred one, you know, what do you, you know? How can you be mindful about that? Right. So these. Mm-hmm. Or these practices people have, like, can you feel the steering wheel on your fingers? Can you kind of just be, you know, take that moment to be present in that, even in that one um, that one anxiety-provoking moment of just sitting in traffic and not moving? Um, and there are ways of doing that, and I think those are practices and um, skills and tricks and all that. Um, but I think... You know, the thing about meaning and intention is if you, you can establish an intention to have meaning, you can establish an intention to be present and bring your... Because the because we wander all the time. But if you have that intention to remind yourself periodically, step out of yourself, fall back. And to me, that's what a daily meditation practice is. It's falling back from just kind of moving through your day and witnessing instead.
0: So like you said earlier, you're in a place of more intention. You now are more present with people that you are meeting with your family with new friends with whatever you're doing and you're drawing and it's really giving you a sense of peace that's
1: that's that's that's, i uh that's my work right that's what i Mine too that's that's my struggle right so i don't you know i got lots of lots of tricks and lots of practices and lots of questions um a lot of which we're talking about today i don't have all the answers right and this is all this is this has gone from a book about a sabbatical very quickly, kind of the meaning of life, but <laughs> you know, I, and, <laughs> but
0: by the way, I think that's know. what your book is about a lot. So, I mean, I don't think that's a bad thing. I don't think you're solving the answer or telling people what it is, but I do think you're making people start thinking about what the meaning of life is for themselves. And I think right. that's, what's great about
1: it. Yeah. So, um, and, and I do realize that, you know, providing for your family, kind of, especially if you're, um, if you have four kids and a wife and you're kind of the um, breadwinner of the family, then I mean, there's a lot of meaning there. Just just, just doing that is meaningful, right? I mean, think how of all think of think of what you read about kind of really wealthy people who don't know what to do with their times and they they can't find meaning.
0: So, um, you how, do you feel like you like can you have it all? I guess is the question. And by all, can you be quote unquote successful in a world that you enjoy? Like you enjoy the corporate world, clearly it challenges you. with something. You've liked, yeah. you, you probably like taking these companies and rebuilding and restructuring, and I'd love to hear more about that, but can you, can you do that? Can you be successful in that world, have kind of the perseverance you need for it and also keep the harmony within?
1: Um, I, think you, I think the answer is unequivocally yes for me. I don't know that it's unequivocally yes for everybody. Um, and this comes t- to your original question about um, Making deliberate choices in your life, and there are plenty of um, situations that people find themselves in where they can't synthesize all of that, and you have to get out. You know, if you're kind of really serious about synthesizing all of that, you can't be in that situation. Or you, you, or somehow, change the situation. And there are some situations that can't be changed, and the only answer is to exit. But um, uh, for me. Uh, for sure, there are moments where I need to be in a different part of the planet and I have to, you know, I'm not sleeping. Or, and believe me, there's plenty of stress in my life. And, um, uh, and I do find all my practices really help ground myself. Um, uh, you know, I, I don't, again, I kind of, I think it requires work and struggle and um, course correction along the way to kind of get to that place where you feel like you've got, a bunch of stuff dialed in that you want to dial in. Right? You want to be engaged in meaningful work and you want to be, have, you want to be in, engaged in meaningful relationships, um, either at work or at home or both. You want to be engaged in meaningful experiences. All of those things require, um, in my opinion, a, if you want a lot of that, if you want to have it all, that's a, that's a lot of balls to juggle in the air and I think you do need it takes a lot of time to kind of dial it in and whatever, you know, and you're always shooting past equilibrium as soon as you think you have a dial, then you know, something, some ball falls <laughs> out of the air. Um, but that's, that's, that's the work of living in this life, right? Kind of achieving what you want to achieve, having what you want to have, and keeping all the balls in the air.
0: Now, do you feel like the difference now is you feel when one of those balls is about to fall out? Like, do you feel it now versus before when you, like, do you have a better sense of what your balance and equilibrium is?
1: I have a vastly better um, ability to deal with it and to deal with it without kind of anxiety, fear, and all those kind of negativity emotions and the negativity bias that kicks in when the ball begins to fall out of the air. Um, I have, uh, you know, I have the, the, the skills and the practices and the wherewithal to deal with it a lot better than I probably did when I was younger and in a kind of different place in my life and career.
0: So talk about that now, if something a little more catastrophic,
1: If something catastrophic really came along, I'm sure I'll be like anybody else, I'll be a puddle on the floor, but <laughs> um, uh, but in terms of day-to-day kind of what used to make me crazy and anxious, it doesn't doesn't. anymore.
0: And so talk about that, like what do you, a little more specifically about what do you feel like when your balance is off, or you feel like I'm not connected to my family right now as much as I wanna be, or I'm working toward, or I'm stressed, like when you feel your balance is off, what do you actually, What happens to you how do you notice it within yourself
1: well well that's that's a great question um it depends what it is and how it's how it's presenting but you know um oftentimes i will you know i'll feel it physically if i feel off balance i'll feel it physically whether it's um uh, i don't know pain or kind of pit in the stomach or whatever it is I'll, i'll feel it and i'll kind of wonder what that's about and begin to question um so i have no trouble recognizing uh, what's going on and even analyzing what's going on. But in terms of, um, you know, ways of dealing with this, so when you, you know, one of the things that I do and kind of describe is kind of the ability when you feel that, right, to feel it as deeply as you could possibly feel it, right, focus in on it, set your intention and attention to that thing and feel it as deeply as you can, breathe it in, right, even if it's a painful thing, kind of, you know, get in touch with it. Lean into it. Don't lean away from it. And you know, one of the lessons is from meditation: is like lean into it, feel it, examine it, and then let it go. You know, and recognize that you know all we have is the present, and the future and the past are you know full of you know hand wringing and regrets and all that stuff. But if you can let go of all that, feel it as deeply, as deeply as you can. Feel really pleasant, present, excuse me, and um, and then let it go. That's kind of that's a practice. And it doesn't always work and sometimes requires a few of those and sometimes it takes time. Um, But just the witnessing of um, even negative emotions um, and drawing your attention to it, the awareness of it in the first place is half the battle. It's Um, true. And once you're aware of it, it, uh, you do a lot. And then there, I mean, there are some meditation practices that are, you know, if, for for really problematic relationships, as a, you know, I'm sure you're aware, kind of a meta meditation of loving kindness. That's really, I think, about we all go around this world with a certain amount of compassion, but sometimes you just kind of you're, you know you have this emotion that's out of control. You're angry, you're upset, and um, it's a way of getting around that and being very deliberate. It's a very deliberate meditation of feeling compassion initially for people that you naturally feel compassion for, and moving it towards people that you naturally don't have compassion for, and, um, uh, and it, it, to me that is a brute force meditation when you're dealing with brute force emotion.
0: So I love the concept of leaning in, and on that, there was something you touched in your book and I was so thankful that you did because it was spiraling around in my head the whole time, which is the idea of escapism versus transition. Because there is a difference of leaving to kind of avoid, let's say, let's pick up our lives and go to Bali so that we can avoid, like, every issue that's actually happening and versus let's pick up our lives, go to Bali and actually work on our issues or whatever we're going through and having a transition. And, like, for you, ultimately, you came back to New York. Um, What are your thoughts on that? And what did you notice when you were there? Did you see people who you could tell, oh, this is escape? This isn't actually... You know what I mean? I feel like there is a, a difference of just escaping and yet needing something to kind of trigger you to be able to, like, look at life differently and look at yourself differently.
1: Look, when I, when I was there, I, I, we had discussions and what I call evil, evil thoughts about staying there for much longer and for good. And because we were really happy there. And, you know, I remember speaking to my brother and he sort of said, you can't do that. I was just escaping. You can't do that. And I said, well, what's wrong with escaping? It feels pretty good now. Right. But it's it it is it's not real when you're escaping. It's not. I'm not. I don't belong in Bali. I'm not Balinese. I'm not. uh, And Bali actually is a kind of place that's really welcoming to Westerners. Um, But it doesn't. But I, you know, I mean, just to be specific about things that that I would be escaping from that I can't escape from. Right, my kid we not really wanting to escape but you know my older son Sam wanted to go to a good school and he had to go to if he wanted to go to a good college he probably had to go to a decent school in in um, in New York at home um, we had aging parents who kind of needed us around we had you know friends and community that um, we were attached to and um, it's not to say we, you know for the right reasons we couldn't pick up and live in another part of the country or another part of the world but to live in a, in a uh, constant state of being being in a break I think is um, didn't feel right and um, you know one of the things I describe in the book is you know a little yoga practice and kind of and the analogy of you know moving from one pose to the next and that trans- how important that transition is and if you mess up the transition you mess up the pose and you mess up the pose before and after and um, or similarly the concept in art of negative space and how negative space really um, you know, uh, defines the positive space, the actual kind of shapes and forms. And if you think of negative space as that's that break, or if you think of that transition as that break, right? They're kind of they're they're trend, they're, they're meant to define the beginnings and the, the 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 bookends of what that is. But if it becomes the thing in and of itself, it 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 loses its own meaning, right? Negative space in and of itself is not meaningful. And a transition in yoga in and of itself is not meaningful. It has to be from one thing to the other. And I think that, um, and that's kind of the way I thought about sabbatical and escape, right? The transition from one thing to the next isn't, was the important thing. But if, if it became the thing, I think it would lose its meaning.
0: That's, I love how you said all of that. And I think it's really beautiful because it does show everyone it is about foundations and building from one thing to another. How, do you feel like when you went on sabbatical, you left with the same intention that you went... Like, what were you expecting when you went on sabbatical? What were you expecting, and how were you expecting it to end? And what were you expecting when you came back? And then what was the reality?
1: I honestly... I kind of... I I had no idea what it was. You just... <laughs> to you, my, you, you know, I was... You know, I was look, I, I was in New York. I was running, I was leading a, a public company. I, had, I was traveling around the world. I had stimulation coming at me from all directions, 24 hours a day. You're tired. And, well, it was tired, yeah, but I just like, I went to my wife and said, I was like, what am I gonna do all day long? I mean, are you kidding me? We're just gonna sit around and, and on an island in the South Pacific? I, I cannot do that. And so I had, no inten- I had no intention at all. I just kind of, I didn't know what I was gonna do. I was a little panicked about it.
0: Well, actually, I love, there's something in the book you talk about when you guys, you traveled first, you went to the Serengeti. And um, I loved how, in leaving the Serengeti, you're like, well, I didn't really figure out like the meaning of my life. And I was like, oh, I know, you're so in that like, I need to figure it out, this is what I'm doing. Like, this is my job here. And you were kind of like, fuck, I didn't like do that part of my job. But you did say, you did figure out how to get back to some of the basics. And I think what's interesting is what you're saying kind of like transitions, like, hey, what basics do you remember learning from that part of the trip? And B, do you feel like those basics really were the foundation to help you through the transition? And if you didn't learn those basics, let's say, in Serengeti or that part of your life, would you even be able to experience all of these other, like, uh, perspective shifts that you had?
1: I don't, you know, I don't have an answer to the question. (laughs) (laughs) It all kind of happens simultaneously. Um, But uh, look, one of the intentions, I did go to Bali, I think, with the intention of learning how to meditate because I started reading about it um, and I got interested in it. Um, mostly as a way of dealing with, you know, the kind of stresses that, um, you know, a lot of business executives have and everybody kind of walks around with. Um, And I found uh, the first book that I read on meditation really compelling. And I would say that is, to me, that's kind of building block number one. And yoga, probably building block. I mean, all of those, to me, those are all building blocks, all basics, right? Meditation, yoga, and art. And, um, uh, you know, and I think meditation and yoga, you get to these points, I'm sure you know, where you kind of you have this experience, and you have this practice, and you get to some sort of plateau where you can't, you can't really take it any further. Um, and then, you know, you need a teacher to kind of really elevate you to to a different area. And I get to the, and I and I kind of, maybe I kind of reached those, I've definitely reached those points in both both those practices, in my art practice. Um, but, but in Bali, I don't, you know, I don't know. I kind of felt like I was establishing those basics when I was there, maybe in preparation for coming back. Maybe that whole thing was really just, I'm going to need this when I get back. need meditation, need yoga in order to ground myself when I get back.
0: Did you ever have a moment of thinking, not that you didn't want to come back, but you didn't want to come back and do the same type of job? I know you've switched jobs, but I mean, type of job? Like, did you ever feel like, or because, no, yeah, there was. Yeah, I mean, you could...
1: for sure. I didn't know what it was, but I, you know, wanted to, I mean, and maybe it wasn't even doing a different thing, but just doing it in, in a vastly different way.
0: Well, one of the things you said, which I love, is that you've met so many executives or professionals on the way that have kind of said, "This is like a mask of myself. Like who I am in this job or how I behave in this job is truly not like who I actually am in my soul." Do you feel like you were a version of that before you went to Bali, or do you feel like you were always a little more intense? Well, for
1: sure, there was a part. For sure, there was a part of me that felt like, for sure, there was a part of me that um, you know felt a little lost in who I needed to be by being a CEO but I also but there was also part of me that really loved the leadership and I think if you're a leader you all you know a true mark of leadership is really subsuming your own personal needs and your own personal goals for the um, better part of a larger organization and to me you know over time I've learned to really enjoy and respect that element of stewardship um, and to me that is meaningful and I think when I was younger I didn't quite understand that right I, I didn't I, you know, to me, it was you know I was really bought into incentive systems and personal performance and advancement and success. And I have a much much broader view of it today. Um, and I get much more meaning and enjoyment out of uh, leadership and being a steward as opposed to just trying to advance myself.
0: In what ways, as a leader now, or as a boss, or as a coworker? with people who knew you from before, be like, that is hilarious that that's how he behaves now, or this is how he reacts now, or this is how he runs the company now, because if you could have only seen him then, are there anything that people could point to and be like, this is night and day, or black and white, or?
1: Well, I, I don't know, I haven't, <laughs> I haven't asked them, except that when I came back, right, my, you know, I kind of obviously, it was obvious to the people in my old firm that, you know, i you know, I'd been a different person, it was, and as a result, it was time to separate ways, right? Um, uh, I don't know you know one of the things that I um, that I've had an appreciation for is that what goes on in one's head what goes on in your head is kind of really dramatic in your own mind but the way it presents outside is you know not really that
0: Right.
1: and I don't know if you've read um, 10% Happier Dan Harris is 10% yep. Happier but he describes this moment in there where he kind of has a complete freak out attack on national television. Oh, yeah. And he's like he's like, he has this anxiety attack, and this is what kind of gets him on his journey. But if you actually look at that video of what, you know,
0: melting. him
1: having this freak-out attack on national television, like, if you blink, you'll miss it, right? It's just like, it's just this moment of, like, silence because he doesn't know what to say, but he catches himself within, you know, a second. But in his mind, right, he got this complete freak-out attack, yeah. It's, I, so, you know, so what I've gone, so I, all my way of saying is I'm skeptical that people will say, oh, he's a utterly really different person. Although I may be wrong. I've come back and people thought, I took my kids, we put them in a hippies, hippie island, went to a hippie school. <laughs> and I've become, you know, a total yogi and total meditator. And I, people do recognize all that. And I was not that before, for sure. It was lifting weights and, and, you, know, and you know, being an alpha male.
0: But clearly something's become, different. Because like you said, your old firm I think in my In my mind,
1: I think something's different.
0: Well, yeah. And For also, sure. like you said, in your old firm, you guys had to part ways because in their mind, you were a different person. Now I'm sure if you walked into that firm now and they didn't know you were ready, they would accept you differently. Cause they would accept who you are now. You know what I mean? Versus yeah. they were comparing you to someone they yeah, knew maybe. before. So, so ob- Obviously something, there's something. Yeah. <laughs> um, something. I know you are short on time. So I actually, l- I want to get to your four you's because I have so many other questions, but what is your favorite book?
1: uh you know what? i my <laughs> i should have prepared better cuz i could give you those questions um i have a lot of favorite books um yeah you're a big reader a big well so uh one of the the one i have a few of them one of them on meditation is joyful wisdom by uh Yu rinpoche um on neuroplasticity it's the brain that changes itself by uh norman doidge um, and uh you know, in drawing and in art, obviously it's drawing on the right side of the brain, uh, by Mary Edwards.
0: I love how different all of those are, but yet they're really all relate to each other. It's pretty amazing. Um, what type of meditation do you rely on the most?
1: Um, so first, I have a daily uh, meditation practice, and I have this bizarre thing where I kind of I get up at four o'clock in the morning, not because not to meditate, but I just might I just get up at four o'clock in the morning. And I do, have a, I do a thirty to forty-five minute vipassana meditation, very simple, basic vipassana meditation. Um, and then I go back to bed for an hour or two and kind of get my full night's sleep that way. Oh, um,
2: wow!
1: But it's uh, the benefit of doing it four o'clock in the morning is nobody else is awake, um, and, um, and you know there's much there's not much more than an ambient sound and my breath to focus on. Um,
0: How's and how's so, your sleep for those next two hours? Probably amazing. Great. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's great.
1: It's really great. And you know, apropos of our earlier conversation, right? Instead of you know, I used to get up at four o'clock in the morning and stress out that I'm not gonna get a full night's sleep. And you know, I accept the world as it comes now and I just accept that I get up at four o'clock in the morning and I meditate and go back to bed.
0: That's smart. I should actually try that idea because I get up really early too. And I have a young child and I have a lot of dogs. And so it's the same thing. Once everyone else starts waking up, like my day is like, whew, right? Right. So maybe there is something getting up even earlier and then like getting at least another 45 or an hour or something. I like it.
1: Well, I do believe believe we need a full night's sleep. (laughs) I'll let you know how it
0: goes. (laughs) Okay. Um, What do what's the first thing you do? Well, we just kind of actually talked about that. What's your favorite self-care hack?
1: My favorite self-care hack. well, I think this is our entire conversation has been the self-care hack, right It's um, uh, it's meditation and art and yoga. Um, uh, I also eat very health, healthfully. Um, you know it's kind of basic stuff that you know all these health self-help books kind of I think all boil down to me is like don't eat crap, exercise, <laughs> exercise every day, get a full night's sleep and drink a lot of water. And I kind of like I feel like that's the, that's the hack. It's a good hack. Um, we can all do it. And then, and then, you know, and then what you're we talking about also, where you're you're feeling anxious about things. Kind of how do you bring yourself into the present? How do you how do you breathe? How do you breathe into it and then exit? it. Um, if you had one, and I, I know one,
0: you don't. I
1: had one. I had one. I had one more. Please. Which which is in the book, which I you know I, I find resonates with people, and it's not mine. It's a woman named Byron Katie's. Love her. Um, which is you know when you kind of find yourself in this in your, in. Well, we all have kind of this negativity bias, and you find yourself being self-critical about this enough, about that enough, uh, rich, or good-looking, or talented, or whatever, whatever you tell yourself, um, one of the great hacks is to subject those thoughts to the Socratic method and ask yourself, you know, really, is it true? What incontrovertible evidence do I have that that's true? What incontrovertible evidence do I have that I'm not smart enough or skillful enough? And if you can't prove it without a doubt, allow yourself that brief opening to imagine what it would be like if the opposite were true. If I am smart enough, I am, t- I am talented enough, and I'm skillful enough, or whatever enough. And then, you know, it's what she calls the work or the turnaround, right? how do you kind of turn those thoughts around into something positive. So I, th- I think that is a wonderful life hack.
0: I think that's an amazing one. I think all of it's about perspective and how you can... Like you were saying earlier, rewire your brain so like just look at things and think about things differently. If you had one piece, and I know you don't like to tell people what to do, but if there's anything you've learned, one piece of a life advice, what would it be?
1: Live your life deliberately. Make make deliberate choices. Live the life you want. And even if it involves trade offs and potential risks, um, it's worth doing it. You know, when I was there were moments when I decided to take a sabbatical the people warn me about. You'll wake up in the middle of the night saying, "What am I doing? This is nuts." And I always had to remind myself that I don't know any. There's nobody who has gone on sabbatical and has regretted it. Nobody. <laughs> so true. And so um, you got to remind yourself. I have to remind myself at the time, right? So yes, it's risky, and there are for sure there are trade-offs. Um, but sometimes it's worth it, right? And and it's almost always worth asking the question if it's something out of the ordinary.
0: It's funny. I used to say that to like my team before on a much smaller scale, obviously it wasn't a sabbatical, but I was very big on pushing people out for a vacation and, or people would be like, I don't know if I have the money. I don't have this. I'm like, you will never ever look back in your life and regret taking a trip. I was like, and you will right. remember, you'll remember every second of that trip, whether it's like good or bad, if good things or bad things happen. I go, you're not going to remember what you did at work for those two weeks. If you stayed. Right. It's like so it's, yeah, it's sure. like, same idea. I can't tell you how many
1: people I can't tell you people how many came how many people came to me when I did this and they go, oh I wish I could do that
0: you can like, you can
1: you can go do it so you either don't either don't want to you don't really want to or you're you're believing some fantasy that you can't but What's, you can
0: the power of choice once again look I know you're on a tight schedule so I don't want to keep you you've been amazing I think whether you like it or not there are a bunch of beautiful life lessons in this book that people can take and I do think it will it can really shift the way people look at everyday life. Because like you said, I like that you came back and you're living your life now, so I think these are practical lessons you can do anywhere. You do not have to move to Bali to do it. It will be an amazing experience, but I think you're giving people so much.
1: Thank you. Thank
0: you. Yeah, no, thank you. Um, So everybody, don't forget, he's always going to do his personal practice, which he's going to tell us something that he does every single day, which can just change way you kind of look at the world. And please follow us. Subscribe, Write a review. It'd be great. And don't forget to go to our closed Facebook group and tell us what you think about this interview. Thanks, everyone. And thank you, Ben. Thank you, Tom. Okay, so this is Ben's personal practice, and it's just something amazing that every single person can do, and it can really shift the way you look at the world.
1: So one of the things that I um, discovered when I um, uh, got back from sabbatical is that I walked past homeless people in uh, New York, and I kind of um, noticed a change in the way I thought about things. I used to think that, oh, the money's going to get drugs or alcohol, or there are better ways to give the homeless than to give them money on the street, Um, you know, give to organizations, which I did. That really kind of worked with them in a more organized way. And then I began to think about, never mind all of that, what about the effect it has on my mind and my brain? if I walk past somebody who's in need without doing anything, what does that do to kind of, to me? Um, and I began to think of all those people and thought, okay, let's say they are heroin addicts or are addicted to drugs or alcohol, so what? Are they any less deserving of compassion than anybody else? And so I adapted something called, what I call a uh, compassion practice, which is, you know, in a world where people are going more cashless and using cards and and Apple Pay or whatnot. You know, a lot of people walk, don't walk around with cash anymore. Um, and I decided to just, I go to the bank every now and then, and I get a wad of $1 bills that I just keep in my pocket. And when somebody asks me for money, regardless of what they look like or where I think it's going, um, anybody who asks, I just give a $1 bill to. And at the end of the day, it doesn't, it, it can't, if I spent my day walking the cities, it would add up to a lot of money, but I just end up going from work to, from office to my home and back and back. Um, it's, a, it's an easy way for me to practice loving kindness and an easy way for me to avoid the negative um, uh, consequences of just walking past somebody in need and doing nothing. And so that's my compassion practice. I, um, walk, I walk around with money for the specific, and I put money in my pocket for the specific person, purpose of giving it to people in need.
0: Dentalk's podcast would not exist without these incredible people. Nicole Rappi, Reem Edon, Hayden Fungheiser, Kim Bielik, and music by Alex Fetter. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed, please do. And also wherever you listen, please go and leave us a review. It's so greatly appreciated. It really does help us out. If you want to keep talking about all this stuff, please join our community on our secret Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search Den Talks podcast, and join us there.